And hi everyone. So today we're going to cover the second half of Genesis chapter 4. So last week we ended with Cain uh, murdering Abel and then saying, Am I my brother's keeper? And God pronouncing judgment on him. And then we're going to um, pick up right in the middle of that dialogue from verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujahel, Mehujahel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and, and pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zilah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Yeah, quite a, quite a striking passage. Um, it talks about Cain, who, uh, after killing Abel, is given the strange a protection from God, lest people take revenge. And Cain goes away, and then we get the genealogy of Cain's descendants. And it's a really striking story that uh, really climaxes in Lamech's kind of drunken boast uh, to his wives. And I think in the second chapter of Genesis 4, there are some pretty crucial lessons about human nature, human history, and a lot of applications for us. So let's look at these lessons. First, I think it's that sin ruins the world like sin ruins the world notice how cain's sin goes down the generations and then by the time it gets to lamech it gets like uh, pretty astounding uh, as he as he boasts in his violence and i think one of the messages of this chapter is that sin affects not only yourself and your life but history and culture itself in such a way that everybody who grows up in that culture and down the generations is infected by its impact the question in verse 10, God says, what have you done? What have you done? And the implication there is Cain knows what he did, but he doesn't know what he did. The, the impact and the implication there is sin is always polluting. Uh, it's a lot bigger. It impacts more than you initially think. A, a father who commits adultery. Um, is that is that uh, something that impacts just his sexuality, for example, or his whole persona? What about his children? What about his children's children? Does it impact that day of the adultery only, or does it impact every day thereafter down the generations? 
What have you done? And the implication here is, you know what? When we sin, we really don't quite understand what we have unleashed into the world. So sin ruins the world in this way. Cain, uh, he says in verse 14, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. It's really interesting. Cain, who is the killer, fears being killed. I think this is yet another way in which sin ruins the world. This is what happens to all sin. It ricochets back on you. Like the liar cannot ever trust other people's words. Selfish people tend to be cynical because they can't believe that anyone else would be anything but selfish. One violent act turns the world into a slightly more dangerous place. Here you are unleashing something into the stream of culture and that culture is what you have to live with and it makes the world dangerous. The deceit you've released into the world turns the world into an untrustworthy place. And this is what the next generation inherits. Until we get to Lamech, the seventh generation after Cain. And we read his drunken boast. He says, listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Cain kills Abel, but by the time you get to Lamech, he's boasting. At least Cain said, I don't know. Like, I don't know what happened. Am I my brother's keeper? Lamech says, like Cain, God says, if anybody touches Cain, he's going to revenge him sevenfold. Well, what about me? Because I've done far worse, so my protection must be even greater. Seventy-sevenfold. Like he's that kind of guy. There's, there's this theme uh, of the alarming exponential growth of sin as it goes down and reverberates throughout culture and throughout the generation. Adam, it says in Genesis chapter 3, 8, when he sinned, he hid from God. In Genesis 4, 16, it says Cain went out from the presence of God. Here, Lamech mocks God. There's a verse in the book of Philippians. It says, they glory in their shame. And I think that's an apt description of Lamech. We see how this happens in this chapter. First, there's, some, there's sin, something you've done that you know is wrong, that comes at you with a, an authoritative voice, like you've done wrong. And then there's Cain's response of hiding or denying, like I don't know where he is. But eventually, you start to change your view on things. Your value system changes. Your authority structure is altered so that what you did is no longer wrong. Who says it's wrong? You know, I don't think what I did is wrong. I think it's healthy for young men and women or, or something like that. Um, I'm not being rude. I'm just being honest. Remember reading about some famous person who left his wife and divorced her in very ugly circumstances saying, I couldn't be true to myself and continue in the marriage. You see, so it's, it's not a betrayal of his marital covenant. What it is, is uh, authenticity. So you change your values by which you can almost boast of the wrong that you did, almost as Lamech does. Um, I'm not betraying my commitments. Um, I'm not walking away from my faith. I'm not, I'm not betraying the promises I made to my friends and before God. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm, growing, uh, I'm growing up. I'm growing out of a narrow mindset. So we use these new values um, an alternate value system so that under that value system, I'm actually being quite heroic. That's what Lamech is doing in this song. 
You know, he's even a poet, right? And he glorifies his use of power and violence and ruthlessness. And I think once you reach this level where you're freely making up your own values and your own story by which you're almost always right, it's very hard for the truth to reach such a person. Like, how, what can be done? And I think short of calamity or something to really shake you fundamentally and to humble you, it will be very hard to penetrate this sort of self-serving, almost a completely coherent value system in which whatever you do, your values will shift around and you'll find the language to justify it or even boast about it. So that's how Cain's descendants end. We don't hear from them after Lamech. So returning to this point, sin ruins the world. It ruins everyone around. It's passed on to the next generation through these twisted values, wrong heroes, polluted spiritual environment gets passed on, and the entire worldview and categories of perception gets warped. Genesis chapter 4 verse 12 reads, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. In verse 14 and 16, twice, the word fugitive or wandering, the land of Nod, which means wandering. Um, there is a, there's a sense of a fugitive activity, a, a, a restless drivenness uh, throughout the description of Cain's descendants and in Cain's uh, life after he leaves the face of God. And, uh, and I, I think the lesson here is sinful man's restless energy turns out to be quite productive, quite productive. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer, it says. In other words, Cain will not be home anywhere. He'll always be anxious. He'll always be restless. He'll be full of frenetic activity, like he's driven. He's driven by something that is chasing him. And I, I think this resonates with our, our common experience, almost a universal restlessness, unable to sit and be at peace within your own skin. This is the result of our maladjustment to God. And unless we make peace with God, we will know no rest. What does Cain do? In the midst of this kind of drivenness, he builds a city. Verse 17, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after his, the name of his son. Cain is an impressive, powerful man. I mean, let's think about him. Like, he eliminates his competition like powerful men tend to do and gets away with it. And then he is protected from vengeance and he builds a city. Like, when's the last time you built a city? I mean, that's quite impressive. What's striking about all of Cain's descendants is that they're very industrious, like they're talented. And also like Cain, they're godless. All mention of God is conspicuously missing from the descendants of Cain. Yet these people are busy doing things, forging an identity created by their own achievements. Each one trying to seek some significance in what he does, trying to create a legacy based on human achievement alone rather than the image of God and the mission of God with which they've been made. The list of accomplishments, uh, it's impressive. Animal husbandry, metallurgy uh, is developed, music, cities are built. And you go back to Genesis chapter 1 toward the end. Remember God said to Adam, multiply, be fruitful, have dominion over the earth which means you are to extend God's creative, order-creating, beauty-creating rule over creation as God's agent. This is sometimes called the cultural commission. All of these cultural activities of taming nature, taming animals, discovering metallurgy, all of this is, interestingly, actually associated with the children of Cain. Like, isn't that interesting? 
And I think the Bible here is expressing something very significant. You see, after the fall of man, when man's relationship with God has been broken, the issue is to reconcile that relationship, not so much continue the cultural commission. And, and the Bible here is expressing this ambivalence about human capability. Like created in God's image, we have great abilities, but like a shattered mirror that reflects a distorted picture, human capabilities have a dark side to them. It's all twisted and broken in all sorts of ways as we exercise our God-given dominion because our God-given dominion can't persist after rejecting a relationship with God, after coming away from the presence of God and His authority and His sense of propriety and beauty. So the achievements of Cain's descendants, it's the product of rootlessness and insecurity and fear and envy. And I think this is so true of life. There's something about culture, about the work of civilization, which has it as its source, someone's deep insecurity, a desire to dominate, ambitious human pride and greed to get on top. I don't know if you've had this experience when you visit the monuments of ancient great men, you know, the giants of history, uh, the docents, the tour guides will often tell you about the number of people who died uh, in building this project or the number of people who are enslaved in order for this edifice to be built. And um, the monument is beautiful. It's magnificent. It's a fine work of, of art and human industry, uh, engineering, boldness. It, it really boasts of the capability of, of uh, human genius, and yet there is blood there, there is oppression there, there is sin there, and th the very works have, have sin and blood, the, the blood of Abel almost intertwined within it. Like, isn't this the, the case with cities of today? I mean, such magnificent places, yet there's so much in the urban centers that are so broken that has bred the kind of evils not known to man before urbanization. It generates a lot of wealth, but it also generates a lot of misery and poverty. You think about modern industrial production, you know, the factory, the division of labor, the assembly line, all producing amazing uh, efficiency, rapid production of goods, yet it all comes at the cost of dehumanization, alienation, loss of a sense of workmanship, like global competition, which brings us low-cost goods, causes people to be exploited in places where labor laws and environmental regulations are not enforced. Like you, you, can't, you can't buy a pair of tennis shoes without, without some of that blood being in the very fabric. So the products of man's progress, right? They're sort of inseparably linked with this darkness mixed with blood and violence. We see this in our technology, right? I mean, I, I, need I elaborate? Like we all live in this. Such amazing wizardry. Yet so much of it um, exploitative and addictive by design, uh, destructive and harmful. I think it's an accurate picture of fallen humanity we get in this chapter. There's a certain greatness to man, even fallen man. And yet because of his fallenness, his sins, his desire for power, all of it twists his grandeur. Seems like... We know what to do with things. We know how to perfect metallurgy. We know how to be creative, but we don't know quite what to do with ourselves. 
You take some brilliant scientist who's estranged from his own children. You see somebody wealthy and famous, but utterly lost and empty inside. Only the Bible explains this. The Bible's view of man is not that man is all evil or all good, but that man is a good thing fallen. Good thing fallen. The greatness of man created in the image of God. And yet there is this fallenness, a tragic flaw, which spoils his greatness. And the greater something is, the worse it is when it falls. You know, uh, a dog can be both pretty good and pretty bad. A man of moderate talents, pretty good and pretty bad. A genius, someone with tremendous political charisma like Hitler can be almost fiendish. Now, the greater something is, the worse it is when it falls. And you see that um, depicted in the subsequent generations of Cain. So I want to ask you, you've got these powers. You have creativity, you have ability, you have tremendous opportunities. But to what purposes? To what purposes? What, what will give meaning to it? Is a godless life, a godless life, capable of giving you meaning and purpose? Can selfishness or fear guide you toward the greatness that God has in mind for each of you? I want to ask you, without returning to the benign and all-knowing purposes of God and putting your life under His design, without doing that, will you have inspiration to guide your life? We see one of the things that drive Cain and his descendants is this uh, fear of being dominated. Even as Cain had dominated Abel, he fears that happening to him. So they gather strength. Like what's a city other than big uh, protection, uh, strong walls, strong gates in which you can be finally safe before anyone who would pursue you. The engine is fear. The product is competence, but the engine is fear. I need wealth so that I can have cushion against the ups and downs of life. I need to succeed because I'm terrified by poverty or disease, the downturns, whatever else terrifies you. We, because of that terror, we try to secure for ourselves like Cain's children. And so the question for you is this, what is driving you? What is driving you? Is it this positive desire? to honor God and to glorify your creator. Like, wow, God's given me my life, uh, this mysterious existence with all my capabilities. How can I steward this well? How can I manage this well for his glory? Or is what's driving you a little bit too similar to Cain and Lamech? Fear, desire for power, for protection, or a competitive, envy-driven sense of, I don't want to lose out. So to review, first we covered this point that sinful man ruins the world uh, horizontally and down the times, uh, down the generation. Second point, a sinful man tends to be quite productive, uh, even impressive. And then the third point that we're sort of getting into right now is um, sinful man is uninspired, uninspired. Verse 17, I think, uh, kind of showcases this. Cain, he builds a city and, and it says, He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
He names it after his child. In other words, it's a picture of Cain's godlessness. He's cut off from God, and his only inspiration now is an extension of himself, his child. He's no longer connected with God's vision for his life. They're like there's nothing higher, nothing that inspires him other than his family. It's a sign of tragedy in a way that his son, like that's all he has. It's all about sort of pouring into the next generation. And I guess that's, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Like we're meant to love our families, to be sure. But family love, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. Uh, it, it's reserved only for for your family, like a mother's love for the child. It's only uniquely for that child. And the greatness of a mother's love for her child could actually mean hostility toward other children because of your intense love for your child. Any other child that would compete with your child becomes, well, becomes an enemy, becomes a competitor. And I think it's good to like provide protection for the young parental love, but is there something that transcends that? Something that, that transcends the family? Something that's greater? I think for the, for the godless, it's hard to find a greater purpose than just family. I think in our society, we've seen the, um, the conversion of politics into religion. And I think it's a, um, an indication that we're bereft of any inspiration. And so something less like politics is rushed in to try to fill that vacuum. And it's very dangerous what's happening in our society. Uh, going back to the idea of family, like that being the, that being the only inspiration available to us. I think um, that's why families after, after a while tend to be stifling places and maybe places of dysfunction because there is no higher call. There is no transcendent purpose that the family feels called to other than their mutual sort of protection and advancement. And it turns out to be quite un uninspiring in the end. All this hard work driven by the whip of fear and envy. And now you dedicate all of that to, you know, your children and you give them the legacy of fear and envy. And you say, like, go get them, Junior. This is life, and yet the Bible says this is the life of Cain and his descendants. And of course, the whole thing is so illusory because one moment of dozing off at the wheel and the whole thing is over. My cousin um, died this week, this past week in Seattle. Um, it's a car accident. It was so shocking. He's only three years older than me, and we don't know what happened, but it's a car accident. And just goes to remind you, you know, we're, we're these soft, squishy creatures with no defense against tomorrow. Well, you get to the end of Cain's line and you think, like this guy Lamech, who's boasting of his violence, who's glorying in his shame. And you think, we need a judge. We need a judge to chasten and curb this exponential growth of sin. And then we need a savior to deliver us from our own ruin. So it's a relief that the chapter ends with a note of hope and grace. Seth is born. And it says, To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And another story begins. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then if you follow that genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, you get to a man named Enoch. 
Enoch is the seventh in the line of Seth, as Lamech was seventh in the line of Cain. And we read these amazing words in Genesis 5.23. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It's amazing. Adam hid from God. Cain went out from the presence of God. But Enoch walked with God, and God took him. In other words, even among Adam's offspring, this kind of closeness with God is possible. Such hope that God can love one man and develop such a relationship with one man that God just decides to take him like they were going on a walk one day. And God says, Enoch, you want to just keep walking home? And Enoch says, sure. And they're gone. It's an amazing picture. And it's a picture that is a foreshadowing of Jesus, who said to his disciples, I and the Father are one. And he went on to say this in John chapter 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Jesus says, it's my father's house. I'll go and prepare a place for you, and we will be together. We'll be with each other. My cousin, who passed away, he was a gangster in his teenage years. I had three older sisters, so he was sort of the big older brother uh, that I never had. Um, never did well in academics, but he became a mechanic and he owned a Union 76 gas station in Inglewood uh, near the LAX airport. And I remember pumping gas there back in the days in the summer. Uh, he moved to Seattle and started an auto body shop. And, and then after doing that for a while, he sold the shop and he got a job uh, as an insurance claims adjuster and uh, loved the life, the stable, stress-free life of a, a salary man and uh, started to enjoy his uh, granddaughter a lot recently. Um, and that's a, there was a lot of ups and downs in his life. And at the end of the day, you know, he died suddenly, uh, people would say tragically, you know, in a car accident. Um, but at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is did he walk with God? Did he make peace with God? Did he place his trust in Christ? We're all going to die one day, you know, the greatest to the least, Abel, Cain, powerful guys like Lamech, all of us. Jesus said, I will be with you. I will be with you. If we walk with him now, we will walk with him into eternity. Because all relationships are forever. Death isn't the end. No more than our bodies is all of us. We're more than our bodies. Life is more than just this. And in the end, all that matter is, are we connected with the source of life, he who created us in his image? God took him, it says of Enoch. And that's all, that's all I want. I, I, that's all I want. I, like whatever happens in my life, I want to walk with God. And one day I'll be no more. Because 
God took me. And if that's where I'm headed, that's where I'm headed. And my life is relationally defined in this way. Then I don't have to worry about Abel outshining me. I don't have to eliminate anyone. I don't have to cultivate brute powers or to build a city to protect myself and secure for myself. I'm free to give myself to extending God's beautiful and benevolent order in creation through making myself available to him to be his hands and feet. All right, so that, um, that's all I have. And let's spend a, a minute just thinking about the story that this chapter is telling about how sin ruins everything. How sinners get this drive and it can turn out quite productive and yet destructive all at the same time. Ultimately, it's uninspired. Against all of that is this alternate picture of humbly walking with God. So why don't you think about how this message spoke to you and uh, take a, a minute to jot down some thoughts or maybe pray a prayer of response.